The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen. Welcome to Money Movers Ahead. This hour, Maersk's chief, Vincent Clarick, on the Red Sea shipping shutdown and some of the risks to the global supply chain. Plus, Charles Schwab, CEO, Walt Bettinger, is with us on what to expect from the Fed in 2024, what he's seeing from his retail investor clients, and a possible reversal for the regional banks. In just a moment, Marathon Asset Management's Bruce Richards, $22 billion under management. What does Bruce see ahead for stocks, private credit, and M&A? First, though, stocks, a record high on the NDX, shooting for nine straight wins for the NASDAQ and the Dow, up 185, just around 4760. You heard Faber mention a moment ago, S&P, less than half a percent now from a 20% return for the year and under 2% away from an all-time high. Topping the tape for us today, the state of the rally. Now that we've heard more of a dovish tone from the Federal Reserve, what's the catalyst to keep moving higher? What needs to happen in 2024 to satisfy the bulls from here? Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. So what's the answer, Mike? Well, Sarah, I think more the same is the easiest answer, which is to say kind of slow and steady on the economy, the kind of growth that at least underwrites the idea that fourth quarter and first quarter earnings look plausible, probably keeps you in a dip buying mode and supports the market. Obviously, the Fed tilting uh, further, perhaps toward an easing bias for the right reason. So kind of the idea of peacetime rate cuts, meaning not because the economy is falling apart, I think is enough. And I, I really do believe it's the idea that's enough. It's not the reality of it. It's not the timing of it. It doesn't have to be deep or soon. They just have to be out there, something to look ahead to. All that stuff, I think, makes sense. It's, I think, countered a little bit by, in the very short term, exactly how persistent this rally has been, how hot it's starting to run. It's the kind of action at the end of the year that usually brings some kind of a significant gut check in January or February of the following year. We'll see if we have that ahead of us. Although, Mike, a lot of people have pointed out the, the number, the trillions of dollars in money markets, both in this country and around the world, uh, if not adding to the gains after the new year, at least maybe getting ready to catch any slight dip. Yeah, I, I, Carl, in general, I feel like the cash on the sidelines argument is one you don't want to have to make because it's sort of this one. It's non-fundamental. It's very hazy. It's very notional. I mean, if cash is uh, moves from the sidelines to the market, you bought stocks from somebody, that person now has cash. It isn't as simple as you think to say that that money moves in and stocks go up. I think it's just people feeling better about risk, willing to hold stocks as they go higher and not rotate out of them and sort of remove the selling pressure. We don't have a ton of cash on on the sidelines relative to how big our stock market is at the moment. Retail money market funds are like two and a half trillion, not the six trillion you hear. So I, I get it that that's sort of a backstop and people's willingness to let equity exposures go higher from here is absolutely bullish if it happens. But I'm just suspicious of these great rotation arguments, which even in the 2010s didn't hold a lot of water. All right. Something to ask Walt Bettinger at Schwab about later in the hour. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Our next guest says low rates could mean good news for deal activity. He expects M&A to pick up and private equity to be very active next year, despite 
despite 2023 activity slipping to its worst level in a decade. Just one prediction from Bruce Richards joining us here, Marathon Asset Management Chairman and CEO. It's great to see you, Bruce, as always. So has your outlook changed around 2024, given the past few weeks? You know, it has, um, given what we see in the economy, given what we see, you know, with growth as well as inflation. It looks like the Fed's going to move a little sooner than we originally thought. The higher for longer will be really higher real rates for longer as opposed to higher absolute rates for longer. Um, So the Fed does move um, and the economy is a bit more robust than what, you know, I think a lot of us expected at this point in time. And and so I'd say that, um, you know, the economy is going to slow substantially next year from the current pace that we're at but going to continue to grow. No more um, recession. Rate, rates will be a bit higher than what the market's currently pricing, but will begin to lower next year. You know, the Fed moved 11 times when they re- brought rates from zero to 525 to 550, 11 times, and that was effectively 21 rate moves if you want to count it in 25 base point increments. And so right now what's priced in the market for next year is six lowerings, uh, or 150 base points. I think that's a bit too much. I think the Fed will probably move three uh, times. So the market has it right that rates will be lower this time next year. But I think they're way ahead of themselves in terms of where it's pricing markets today. So you think we're due for a little correction here? Well, what, I, what I'd say is this. I'd say two-year notes have a long way to drop because if you spot the curve, if you bring, if you bring Fed funds all the way down to where it eventually settles in, Two and a half, three percent. Not a zero, but two and a half, three percent. That would put Fed funds, you know, right at two and a half to three, would put the two year note right around three percent, which yeah. puts 10 year notes around four. So think about how much two year notes can fall, but how little 10 year notes can rally from here. Now, the market will rally past what I'm just saying because markets go way ahead of, you know, where fair value is, but at some point it will come back to fair value when this is all said and done. And so very bullish for the markets, obviously, um, but, you know, I think that the markets are a bit overextended here, yes. If we do get three next year, is it front-loaded, or do you think the Fed wants to cut as the election gets closer? I think they don't want to cut when the election gets closer, but they don't want to delay if they have to delay. And so, look, I think at the end of the day, they're data dependent, and it's all going to be based upon inflation and growth. Inflation is going to come in, come in close to 2% because without OER, we're already at close to 2%. Right. And you think that eventually comes along? I think that eventually yeah. comes along. And so, you know, it'll have, to, um, it'll have to adjust. Yeah. So what kind of activity do you expect to be unleashed next year as rates stabilize and go down? It's going to be the year of the refi. If this year was the year of rates and AI, next year will be the year of refi. And, you know, when you think about AI and what it meant for the Magnificent Seven and where the NASDAQ is on the year, up 43% on the year, relative to S&P and the Dow, it's just absolutely stunning. But if you also think about rates, high-yield bond market, leverage loan you know, marketplace, private credit, all doing 12% plus this year. It's a stunning year for how well credit has performed relative to risk. And so when I look at next year, I think it's going to be another strong year for credit, but I also think it's going to be another strong year for credit in in what's going to be very strong volumes. So the investment bankers haven't had much to do because M&A activity is down 50%, and PE sponsors have put very little money to work, but as rates come down a bit, 
then it's going to, it's going to unleash this activity in the M&A sector as well as among private equity sponsors. It's going to require a lot of financing. So you can, consumers are going to refinance into these lower rates, whether you took out a high auto loan or a higher mortgage rate loan. Um, there's going to be refinancings there. You know, there's a $500 billion wall of commercial real estate that's coming due next They're year. They're going to refinance a tril- at a higher a, rate, right? Well, you know, <laughs> hotels were refinancing now at lower rates. Well, higher rates relative to before, but, 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 but we're refinancing now. We, we just wrote uh, this week a uh, senior living loan, um, which we like. And, um, you know, the banks have backed away from making these loans, and so we're stepping up making these loans. So I think there's a lot of commercial real estate, a lot of corporate refinancing, a lot of M&A, um, and private equity sponsor buyout to happen uh, next year. That's going to be a boon year. And so it's really ironic that we're reading in the papers today um, about bonuses being down for the investment bankers <laughs> and, and it being a really tough year. Yeah. And, and we're, we're not going to do $3 and, trillion. And, and we feel for them. <laughs> and, and, and while that may be the case, I just say, hey, guys, gals, cheer up. Next year is going to be a bonanza year for you. And so get over this year. And let's look forward to 2024. It, it all even out in the wash. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, small caps, distressed? Would you rather own high yield over investment grade? Things like that. I, th- I think you do want to own high yield over investment grade. Um, number one, you can reduce some duration, pick up a bunch of yield. Um, but in terms of distressed, there's when I say re- refinancing, it's going to be refinancings that are, you know, the existing is going to be like the deal we just did with Travelport. So Travelport, you know, is a the backbone of um, how you book tickets on, with the airlines. And so it's a reservation system, it's a booking system. They had, it's an Elliott-owned company. They have $4 billion of debt, $2 billion senior debt, $2 billion subordinate debt. All the subordinate debt, that whole $2 billion equitized, diluting Elliott. Elliott stayed in, but diluting Elliott. And they came out with the $2 billion senior being refinanced into $1.7 billion of senior. And the $200 million that we owned of the senior, we earned a 15% return on that because we bought it at a discount. It got paid off. There's lots of these restructurings that are going to require preferred, going to require, you know, some additional equity contributions. That's going to be a big part of this whole, whole quote, refinancing game that gets played in 2024. So we're super bullish about refinancing the quality companies as well as the quality companies who are over levered. It's a big opportunity in 2024 because the markets are now reopening. What about bankruptcies? I mean, they're on the rise. They are on the rise. We've seen a lot of bankruptcy year to date, and we've seen about 140 billion here in the U.S. alone. Does that about calm 90 down? Com- about 90 companies. It's up. It's up over the last year, and we have about 400 billion dollars of debt that's on our watch list of triple C-like companies that have their dollar price debt trading below a 75 dollar price. And so that's going to be very tough to refinance some of those more levered companies. And so the question is, you know differentiating the good from the bad from the ugly, what companies that we want to invest in. But there are a number of investment opportunities in dislocation, in distress, with a bunch of bankruptcies on the horizon. Because although rates will come down, it might not come down quickly enough to save some of these companies that need to refinance, given the maturity walls that are happening. We've all seen the horror movie where you think the killer's dead and he's, there's one last attempt, <laughs> right? Are, are you building in a playbook for a double top in either rates or inflation? 
you know, I, I think rates have kind of done their thing. I think inflation is under control. So I don't think the double top comes that way. But I think that the markets are overextended here relative to the rate cut that you're going to get and relative to the economic slowdown that we're going to see next year. Not a recession, but a slowdown from where we are now. And so I'm not saying that equity markets can't go higher. They most certainly will. But there may be, as you said, uh, when we open, Sarah, there may be a correction in the horizon uh, sometime in 24, probably in the first half of 24. Yeah, as the market sort of comes to grips with that reality, I guess, of the disconnect. Bruce, you're a global investor. Is there a, is there a global opportunity, a country or a, a market that you're particularly excited about? Well, you know, um, we are global investors. And, and Europe, for instance, um, and, you know, a continent, um, you know, has some issues. There are, Around the zero rate, I think the Bank of England and the ECB cut much more aggressively and sooner than the, than the, than the Fed does. So number one. Number two, you know, what's happening um, in the Suez Canal, which counts for $9 billion of revenue for Egypt, is not good for Egypt. It's also not good for Europe because all that energy um, that's produced, like Qatar is 25 percent of the, you know, the natural gas yeah. um, of, of the world, and, and, and that comes on ships. LNG comes through ships through the Suez Canal, you know, to supply Europe. And so there are these, you know, conflicts that are happening, um, which are uh, which make it make it complicated. But, you know, the emerging markets have been rocking. And so when you look at the top 10 equity performers this year off the lows, the S&P is number 11. The top 10 mostly comes from the emerging markets. And Japan. <laughs> and Japan and, and, and a couple of European countries as well in terms of the rally off the lows. And so there's lots of opportunities there globally. Um, but what's going on in the Suez, and, and I, I know Mercio is going to yeah. be on shortly, but they have 300 ships that they own in control, and they've just decided they're not moving through the Suez. And so um, getting that under control, what that means for, um, you know, for shipping, Prices and shipping rates. So shipping rates actually, which are up 10% off the lows, could go up 100%, could double from where they are today if this isn't arrested, if this isn't brought under control in the next six months. Yeah, it's, it's why it's such a huge story for us, and we're, we're going to continue to be all over it. Thank you, Bruce. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Bruce Rissard, Marathon Asset Management. Still ahead, uh, Bruce mentioned the story of the day. Maersk is rerouting some ships from the Red Sea due to those recent attacks in the area. We'll talk to the CEO, get an update on the situation, talk about what he expects next. Plus, the consumer staples sector down on the year. Could it see a turnaround in 2024? We're going to discuss where to find opportunity in that sector. Stocks are at session highs right now, a new all-time high for the Dow. Materials, discretionary, industrials, they are leading the charge. But it is another broad rally as this... Grind higher continues. Only information technology is barely negative in the S&P. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. How do you keep maritime trade afloat when you don't have access to one of the most important waterways in the world? That's the question facing our next guest. Maersk announcing plans to pause all vessels bound for the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, a step we're seeing many of the biggest names in shipping take as they face drone attacks from this region from an Iranian-backed rebel group. With us this morning is Maersk's CEO, Vincent Cleric. Vincent, appreciate the time uh, and uh, you spending some time to talk about an incredibly important story. I guess... Many questions, but one would be whether or not you expect this U.S.-led multi-nation force to have any impact. Yes, absolutely. I think the, uh, the, uh, the declaration that we saw this morning from uh, Lloyd Austin is, is really reassuring. We have between 10 and 12 percent of the global GDP that is transiting through, uh, through the Red Sea. And it is extremely important for us to guarantee safe passage for our ships in order to, to do the job that we're supposed to do. We can no longer guarantee the safety of our crew, and that's why we took the decisions that we had to take. But we're also cer certainly welcoming uh, the, the, uh, the initiatives that the, that the U.S. Navy is taking to reopen the trading route. So then this, uh, this new operation, um, what, how will it affect your short-term decision-making? Well, as I mentioned, we, we've been victim of an attack uh, already on Thursday, where fortunately nobody got hurt and, and our vessel was not touched. But here over the weekend, different other ships from other companies have been attacked and in some cases have been, have been hit and have sustained some, some damage. So it was very important for us to guarantee the safety of our crew and to take a pause and actually see what the proper course of action would be going forward. It was also important to see that the global community would react very strongly, and they did decisively today by establishing uh, this task force. We understand that it's going to take a few weeks for that task force to be fully operational and to reopen the safe passage uh, across to the Red Sea. And in the meantime, we've decided to reroute some of our ships south of the Cape of Good Hope in order to reach their final destination. Uh, we think that this is going to be actually the, the fastest way for us to get that cargo delivered to our customers. How, how much of a delay, though, does it add? It depends a little bit on where you're sailing to and from, but uh, it's anywhere uh, from two to, uh, to four weeks of, uh, of delay in transit. It's a 7,300 kilometers or about detour, so it takes a, it takes a while to, to actually perform it. So now that you've paused the routes through the Red Sea and Suez Canal, overall in the world of global shipping, how, how disruptive is this? It's obviously fairly disruptive. Uh, in the short run, we have a lot of ships today that are in positions uh, are taking routes that are significantly longer uh, than, what they, uh, than what they were intending to do, which at some point will mean that they are not able to, to rotate back uh, into, their, into, their, into Asia or back into Europe at the speed or at, at the date that we were expecting them from. So it's a stark reminder, just you know, a short time after COVID, that disruptions in supply chains are still staying with us. And certainly it's reviving a lot of the conversations we're having with our customers about how we create more resilience in supply chains. Uh, the nature of these attacks and the frequency, uh, it's been called unprecedented. And I'm wondering whether you agree. Uh, and if so, 
what in, in the past comes closest to this, this, this level of disruption? I think it's really difficult. Uh, I mean, one of the first episodes we thought about was when, uh, during COVID, actually, when the Ever Given got stuck in, in the Panama Canal, which is not the same level of attack, but actually was just as disruptive to trading routes. At this time, uh, the problem was solved, actually, in a matter of days, uh, and, and quickly transit was reestablished. In this case here, it looks like it's going to take a bit longer. What has been especially uh, shocking in the last few days is just the randomness of these attacks. Uh, there is absolutely no way for us to understand why certain ships have been targeted. And therefore, it puts the whole fleet into play, uh, basically, because no safe passage could be guaranteed as long as we don't understand what, what people are going for. If, in fact, you feel it's safe enough to, to um, resume the routes, do you think crews will go along with you? I think uh, we'll, we'll have to work now with, the, with this task force to see how safe passage will be uh, reestablished. We will also, of course, involve some of our crews into, uh, into making sure that uh, their safety is guaranteed and that they actually can see that. Uh, they are putting their lives on the line. And it is, of course, our first and, and foremost worry right now is actually to make sure that what we have and what we can go back to them with is actually something that is safe enough that we can take the responsibility to, to bring them through and, and not put their lives at risk. So yes, we do expect that once the right conditions have been provided or have been established, that we will be able to, to transit again. What's it going to do to shipping rates, to prices? It's, it's, this is unfolding at such a speed that it's still very hard to, uh, to see what, what is going to happen. What we have seen uh, already in the last 48 hours is sharp increases on some, of the, on some of the spot freight rates because of fear in the market that tonnage will be short in the coming weeks and therefore that, it, that there will be a shortage of capacity as a result of these longer trade routes. So this, could have, this could have some impact in the short run. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, we do actually believe that the international community will mobilize fast to reopen these trade routes to guarantee safe passage. And that should be something that resorbs itself in the weeks to come. So not something that should be with us for a long time, but it's something that we need to, to see actually happen. Uh, in terms of goods categories, uh, oil obviously is a, a prime culprit in terms of what's being disrupted. But are there others that are uh, close to that uh, that we might be importers of here in the States? Well, I think, you know, you have a lot of goods today that are transiting from, uh, from India, from, from the Far East uh, into the East Coast of the United States that does follow this trade route. So certainly a lot of the shipping in between Asia and the U.S. for all kinds of end consumer goods that you will find on your retail shelf might see some delays because of, uh, of these disruptions. Yeah, I was going to ask how it affects America, for, for instance, different than, than Europe in timing and in pricing. Well, I think from a, from a timing perspective, obviously Europe has a much higher dependency on this trading route with Asia. Everything has to go to Suez today, or had to until a couple of days ago, whereas uh, a lot of cargo can also find its way to the U.S. crossing the Pacific. So there are alternative routings that can be, uh, that can be deployed for the U.S. that are more difficult to do when it comes to, uh, when it comes to Europe. So cl clearly the delays and the disruptions will be more pronounced in Europe. And that's also where we're seeing prices be showing much more sensitivity into Europe than they are into the United States. Finally, uh, as, it, as pertains to the Cape of Good Hope, are there downsides in addition to delays and, and cost are, in terms of safety features, or is that a relatively safe route? 
even though it is longer to take? No, it is longer. It is a safe route. I think for us, the, the disruption is mostly uh, time, time and delay, and also the availability of having those ships going back to where they were supposed to be once they have to take these delays, uh, both on the way in and back on the way out. You mentioned the context. We had, we had COVID, and we saw how, how disruptive that was to supply chains and, and shipping, and we saw rates go up. And then it reversed and went the other way. And I'm just curious how this disruption fits in with what has been, Vincent, a structural oversupply, hasn't there? whether this compensates think, for that. Well, I think what, what, what this uh, disruption uh, fits when is a pattern of more and more frequent disruptions that we're seeing across the supply chain over the last decade already, an intensification of these disruptions, whether it is because of climate change, because of geopolitics, or simply because of pandemics or, or other emergencies. So we're seeing this already fitting into that, into that pattern. Now, when it comes to supply and demand, obviously, in the long run, this will be uh, resorbed and, and will have little or no impact. In the short run, though, it's pretty evident that when we, as we take longer route, this will absorb a lot of tonnage into maintaining services uh, during, uh, during the impact that we're seeing from these changes. Vincent, we hope, uh, we hope in the long run, yes, uh, it, it does get resolved. We really appreciate you helping us understand the situation a little bit better. Thank you, uh, Vincent Clerk Thank of Maersk. Ahead, the CEO of Charles Schwab. Look at what the retail investor is doing as we head into year end. What do you expect for 24? We're back in just a moment. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. couple hours into trading, market's been building some gains now. 225 on the Dow. Let's get post to post with Bob Bassani. Bob? Uh, the Dow's riding a nine-day win streak, Carl, and I have rarely seen this kind of violent upward momentum. Enjoy it while it lasts, folks, because it doesn't happen very often. What do I mean by momentum? So these, some of these Dow stocks are just flying every single day. Boeing, another, uh, another high. I think it's up 14 out of the last 16 days. Uh, Caterpillar, straight up, just every single day this month, 10, at least 10 out of the last 11 days, it's been up. It's sitting essentially at, uh, at an historic high. Uh, what else? American Express right over here. This was $140 at the end of October. It's up. 25% in, in, in six weeks. That's a, essentially a new 52-week high. You really want to see stuff that's moving. Look in the consumer discretionary group. This is where market participants believe the soft landing is very, very real, and the consumer is going to be holding on. So we keep putting up every day a, a variation on the home builders. Pulte's been up 18, 19, 20%. Lennar, the same thing. All of the home builders. This is consumer discretionary group. Uh, home Depot, which is the biggest stock, uh, in consumer discretionary uh, has been on fire as well. Uh, it was well, $310 at the end of November going into December. Look, 310 to 351. That's a huge move for a stock of this size here. So it, 
this just gives you an idea how big it is. And it's not just even in big cap stocks. Small cap stocks in the consumer group, consumer discretionary group, are rallying as well. Uh, Mohawk's a good example. Carpets, okay? This is a tiny company. We're talking $7 billion, something like that. It was in terrible shape. It was a three-year low at the end of October. It was 75 at the end of October. I put it up right here. Look at it, 104. That's a, a, a 30% move uh, in, uh, in a, six weeks, essentially, for these stocks. So these are big, big moves here. Uh, Best Buy is another one. This is another small cap, maybe you know, $15, $16 billion. That's not much at all. It was right near a three-year low. Same thing as, as Mohawk. So it was oh, 59, 60, 61 at the end of October, now 77. So you, you see here, again, same situation as with Mohawk, uh, a 25 percent move essentially in six weeks. And, you know, uh, Sarah, you can see this in the B of A fund manager survey that happens every month. The bullishness, I've never seen bullishness like these. These fund managers tend to be useful at extremes. They're sentiment indicators. So 70% believe the soft landing is happening right now. 89% believe there's going to be cuts next year from the Federal Reserve. They had the lowest levels of cash in over two years. So generally, when you see this kind of levels of bullishness on a sentiment indicator like that, it's usually some kinds of at least short-term top. I've never seen, not in many years, these kinds of moves so rapid and violent. Again, folks, enjoy it while you can. Back to you. Now more than 200 on the Dow. Bob, thank you very much. Time for a news update. Silvana Hanau has that for us. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Sarah. Good morning. Well, the funeral for late Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is underway right now in D.C. President Biden and Chief Justice John Roberts are scheduled to speak at the service for O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. She died earlier this month at the age of 93. The Biden administration has unlocked funding to launch the American Climate Corps, a new federal program that will employ thousands of young Americans in the clean energy, conservation and climate sectors. It will be led across a partnership of seven federal agencies, including the Commerce and Energy Departments. The White House is planning to launch the first program by next summer. And NASA just used a laser to beam an ultra HD video from deep space. It featured a tabby cat named Taters and was sent back from nearly 19 million miles away or about 80 times the distance between the Earth and the moon. The space agency says the test paves the way for high data rate communications to support a mission sending humans to Mars, Carl. Look at that. Wow. One more building block uh, yeah. on a Mars trip. That's interesting. Thanks, Silvana. Silvana Hanau. After the break, looking for consumer staple plays, we're going to ask one analyst why he sees some opportunity for names like Coke and Colgate-Palmolive when Money Movers continues in just a moment. A note from UBS uh, grabbing our attention this morning. The bank lays out their consumer staples outlook for 24, saying a mid-cycle recession could help the group outperform next year. Joining us with some of his favorite names is the analyst behind that call. UBS's Peter Grom. Peter, great to have you. You do point out a lot needs to happen on the macro in order for the whole sector to shine, right? Yeah. I mean... Going back to the earlier segment, you know, given what we're seeing across the broader market, if this continues, it's going to be very difficult for staples to see relative outperformance. 
Uh, that said, you do have some favorites. Uh, talk about which ones and why. Sure. I think as we look out to next year, obviously, as I alluded to, you know, the sector performance is going to be very much, you know, in many ways, binary and dictated by the macro. You know, but within, you know, consumer staples, you know, investors often look at whether it's beverages versus household products versus packaged food. And, and we don't really necessarily see any key, you know, category sector themes as we look out to next year. But we actually think that large cap multinationals could fare better. And it's it's really quite simple. We, we just see, you know, earnings growth as we look out to 2024 favoring this group. You know, FX, at least for now, appears to be less onerous. And, you know, look, our UBS economics team is expecting emerging market growth to accelerate relative to developed market growth. And so we think this should drive bo better bottom line growth. And look, over the last 20 years, that hasn't happened all that much given the strengthening of the dollar, but the years that it has happened has typically resulted in outperformance for many of these multinational names. And in that light, we continue to like Coca-Cola and Colgate-Palmolive. Uh, uh, one of your peers on the street this morning cuts Pepsi, and they say we prefer Coke and uh, KDP, but they also add that uh, the narrative overhang from GLP-1s has been pretty stubborn, and in their words, tough to disprove. I wonder if what you think about that. Um, look, I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as it relates to GLP-1. I, I think investors have kind of digested the fact that this is going to likely be a long-term headwind. How, how, when, the magnitude at which it plays out, I still think is very much uncertain. I also think investors have kind of taken a step back and looked at this and said, you know, look, in emerging markets, you know, this GLP-1 dynamic is, is, might not necessarily be a headwind at all. And I think, look, if you look at some companies within our core coverage, I mean, volume declines have been structural, carbonated soft drinks, you know, et cetera. And, and so, look, th these companies have, you know, avenues to continue to drive growth, you know, top line growth, even if volumes remain under pressure. So I think there's still a lot to be determined here. Um, but, yeah, I think there is, you know, it's certainly a risk as you look out longer term for sure. I mean, what, wouldn't the, the companies argue, Peter, that we finally have – easing pricing pressure so we can finally get some some volume growth and that that will be a source of growth in 2024 where they couldn't do that previously. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think as you look out over the next call it like six to 12 months, I, I would expect the, the, the rate of volume growth to, to improve here, particularly as pricing comes down. But, you know, as we saw on the on the way up, you know, elasticity is held in better. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because the rate of price increase is lower, that this means an, a, a big snapback in, in volume. But we do expect kind of category growth to kind of return to normal. And, and I think in many ways, that's kind of our view on, on, on the sector as a whole, where you have greater visibility to durable top line growth, which we view is, is likely going to be more volume weighted over the next 12 months. I think those are the stocks that are going to outperform, you know, in the, in the current environment. Think we'll get any deals? Oh, always questions on this on this group, right, where they try to figure out what's what's growing fast and whether they scoop up these these newer, hotter brands or whether they merge together to get some growth. Now that we have some interest rate stabilization, what do you think happens there? Look, it's a great question. It's it's tough to really say. I mean, balance sheets are in a much better spot today than they were 18 months ago. But I also think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So, look, I, I, it's tough for me to, to, to opine on it, but it's certainly plausible at this point. And, and we really haven't seen much in, in the consumer staples you know, landscape over the last couple of years. So, you know, on a relative basis, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it ticked up. But, you know, a significant step change, I think, is, is, is still, you know, to be determined. Yeah.
That's a good look at the space. It's been pretty interesting all year long, even with some of the, uh, the headwinds. Peter, thank you. Uh, Peter Grum of the UBS. After the break, CEO of Charles Schwab joins us. We'll get his take on the retail investor and what he sees ahead for 2024 with a rally underway. Money Movers will be right back. A note from UBS uh, grabbing our attention this morning. The bank lays out their consumer staples outlook for 24, saying a mid-cycle recession could help the group outperform next year. Joining us with some of his favorite names is the analyst behind that call. UBS is Peter Grom. Peter, great to have you. You do point out a lot needs to happen on the macro in order for the whole sector to shine, right? Yeah. I mean, going back to the earlier segment, you know, given what we're seeing across the broader market, if this continues, it's going to be very difficult for staples to see relative outperformance. Uh, that said, you do have some favorites. Uh, talk about which ones and why. Sure, I think as we look out to next year, obviously, as I alluded to, you know, the sector performance is gonna be very much, you know, in many ways, binary and dictated by the macro. You know, but within, you know, consumer staples, you know, investors often look at whether it's beverages versus household products versus packaged food. And, and we don't really necessarily see any key, you know, category sector themes as we look out to next year. But we actually think that large cap multinationals could fare better. And it's it's really quite simple. We, we just see, you know, earnings growth as we look out to 2024 favoring this group. You know, FX, at least for now, appears to be less onerous. And, you know, look, our UBS economics team is expecting emerging market growth to accelerate relative to developed market growth. And so we think this should drive bo better bottom line growth. And look, over the last 20 years, that hasn't happened all that much given the strengthening of the dollar. But the years that it has happened has typically resulted in outperformance for many of these multinational names. And in that light, we continue to like Coca-Cola and Colgate-Palmolive. Uh, uh, one of your peers on the street this morning cuts Pepsi, and they say we prefer Coke and uh, KDP. But they also add that uh, the narrative overhang from GLP-1s has been pretty stubborn and, in their words, tough to disprove. I wonder if what you think about that. Um, look, I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as it relates to GLP-1. I, I think investors have kind of digested the fact that this is going to likely be a long-term headwind. How... how when the magnitude at which it plays out, I still think is very much uncertain. I also think investors have kind of taken a step back and looked at this and said, you know, look, in emerging markets, you know, this GLP-1 dynamic is, is might not necessarily be a headwind at all. And I think, look, if you look at some companies within our core coverage, I mean, volume declines have been structural, carbonated soft drinks, you know, et cetera. And, and so, look, th these companies have you know, avenues to continue to drive growth, you know, top line growth, even if volumes remain under pressure. So I think there's still a lot to be determined here. Um, but yeah, I think there is, you know, it's certainly a risk as you look out longer term for sure. I mean, what, wouldn't the, the companies argue, Peter, that we finally have easing pricing pressure so we can finally get some some volume growth and that that will be a source of growth in 2024 where they couldn't do that previously? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think as you look out over the next, call it like six to 12 months, I, I would expect the, the, the rate of volume growth to, to improve here, particularly as pricing comes down. But, you know, as we saw on the on the way up, you know, elasticity is held in better. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because the rate of price increase is lower, that this means an, a, a big snapback in, in volume. But we do expect kind of category growth to kind of return to normal. And, and I think in many ways, that's kind of our view 
on, on, on the sector as a whole, where you have greater visibility to durable top line growth, which we view is, is likely going to be more volume weighted over the next 12 months. I think those are the stocks that are going to outperform you know, in the, in the current environment. Think we'll get any deals? Always questions on this on this group, right, where they try to figure out what's what's growing fast and whether they scoop up these these newer, hotter brands or whether they merge together to get some growth. Now that we have some interest rate stabilization, what do you think happens there? Look, it's a great question. It's it's tough to really say. I mean, balance sheets are in a much better spot today than they were 18 months ago. But I also think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So, look, I, I, it's tough for me to, to, to opine on it, but it's certainly plausible at this point. And, and we really haven't seen much in, in the consumer staples you know, landscape over the last couple of years. So, you know, on a relative basis, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it ticked up. But, you know, a significant step change, I think, is, is, is still, you know, to be determined. Yeah. That's a good look at the space. It's been pretty interesting all year long, even with some of the, uh, the headwinds. Peter, thank you. Uh, Peter Grum of the UBS. After the break, CEO of Charles Schwab joins us. We'll get his take on the retail investor and what he sees ahead for 2024 with a rally underway. Money Movers will be right back. Let's get the market outlook for 2024 with one of the biggest names in banking. Our next guest sees three rate cuts on deck for next year from the Fed, says it's likely we'll see some pain for the economy. That doesn't mean those stocks will struggle. Joining us now is Charles Schwab, CEO, Walt Bettinger. Walt, good to see you. Welcome. Well, thanks, Sarah. I appreciate the invitation to be on your program. Yeah, no, it's always good to hear from you. What are you seeing from retail investors right now with this powerful rally that's going on now eight weeks? It has been a strong rally, but uh, uh, retail investors are still very cautious. Uh, currently, we're seeing a l- little bit over 50% of them uh, have a bearish view. Now, that's improved quite a bit from a year ago when it was about three-fourths of them uh, with, uh, with a bearish view on the market. But they're still fairly cautious right now. A lot of concerns about the potential for inflation not falling as rapidly as as maybe some are projecting and and also a lot of concerns about the political environment that we're operating in and what 2024 could bring. So do you see that as a tailwind for the markets that that people are still feeling cautious and they could be about to deploy a lot more cash? Gosh, it's such a tough call in the uh, in the short run as to as to whether consumer and investor sentiment is going to drive the market. I do think probably the actions of the Fed are likely to have more of an impact maybe than, uh, than whether sentiment's 50% negative or, or maybe yeah. turns a little bit more positive. I mean, what a year it's been well, for, for Schwab, for, for regional banks, for the entire banking system. I, and I know you're, you're in quiet periods, so can't talk necessarily on performance, but just curious what lessons you, you have learned from this year about managing the business in in this rising rate cycle? Well, one thing we know is that individual stock performance can be driven by narratives on a short-term basis. Sometimes those are positive narratives, sometimes they're negative narratives. But at Schwab, we've always tried to take a very long-term perspective in the managing of the business. And, and, And that means a focus on clients, a focus on client metrics, if you actually take a step back and, and look at 2023, it was a pretty strong year for our firm overall. Clients entrusted us with 
over $300 billion in net new assets, still a rather astonishing number. Our pre-tax margins just adjusted for the one-time costs around the integration uh, stayed in the 40% range. Uh, it, uh, it was a strong year. And, and of course, oh, by the way, we did all that while completing about 90% of the largest, most complex integration in the history of our industry as we combined with, uh, with Ameritrade. So sure, in the short run, there were, there were some challenges uh, driven in part by reality and in part by a narrative. But in the long run, we're right on track for the long-term growth that, uh, that we feel really bullish about for Schwab and, and for our clients and our stockholders. You know, well, I mean, speaking about the industry at, at, at large, uh, managers and investors are always uh, colored by uh, most their, their recent experiences. And I wonder if you think the playbooks are altered for the longer term now when it comes to things like duration matching and whether or not we'd ever see a repeat of what we got into in March. Well, I think there is tremendous uh, pressure to probably uh, shorten durations. And, and let me just emphasize again that at Schwab, we have never tried to guess interest rates. We don't, uh, we don't think that we or, frankly, anyone else has much expertise at that. Keep in mind that when the Federal Reserve began increasing rates, they themselves were estimating that they would cap out at about half where they actually did. So we've always maintained a duration relatively short, somewhere around two and a half years in the management of our balance sheet. And uh, the reality is even at two and a half years when rates go up 500 basis points in a year and a half, you're, yeah. you're going to get some unrealized losses. So there's probably some who are going to be looking at short, shortening that. We, we will be also evaluating that ourselves. But, but I just think it's important to recognize we're in a cyclical business. Yeah. Uh, there's no way to avoid that. In my tenure at Schwab, there's been three major, major crises that have, that have occurred from, a, from an external environment. We had the Internet uh, bubble bursting, and Schwab's revenue went down about 40%. We had the financial crisis where our revenue temporarily went down about 20%. And now we've got sort of this interest rate crisis that occurred earlier this year, and that will ultimately probably impact our revenue 12 or 15%. But over the long run, every one of those crises was followed by a positive time, and our revenue not only caught up for those declines, but then grew dramatically uh, subsequently. So it's a cyclical yeah. business. Don't overreact. Focus on clients. It's a playbook that's worked well for 50 years at Schwab, and we don't tend to change that playbook. Well, what's also interesting, Walt, is your business historically has benefited from rising rate environments. So I was going to ask you, now that the Fed is expected to begin cutting rates next year, which you agree with, what that means for your business and profitability? Well, I think where we've benefited is more when rates rose modestly from ZERP. Uh, anytime you get 500 basis points in as short a period as we did this time, that's going to be tough for any company that manages a balance sheet uh, like, like we do. And so uh, when we look at next year and, and the current dot plots projecting three declines, uh, we don't expect that to have a meaningful impact on our business. Um, we just need a bit more stability in the, in the environment, uh, in the regulatory world. Uh, all those things together will be good for our clients. And if they're yeah. good for our clients, they'll be good for us. And finally, Walt, you know, the, the buildup we've seen in money market funds. I know you've seen it at Schwab, like, like we've followed this trend. I'm curious how that looks historically and how you think that money gets reallocated in a 
falling rate environment? I think you have to be very cautious to assume that that money that is in retail money market funds is going to pour back into the market. Uh, the returns are still very strong there at plus 5% in most funds, certainly in our funds with our very low uh, fees on them. But, uh, but I think you have to be careful to think that's going to pour into the market. And investors, again, are still more bearish than they are bullish. Yeah. Uh, the returns are quite strong. Uh, so we'll see it evolve over time. But I, I would not count on that as being a big tailwind to the equity markets in 2024. It's really interesting to hear that, just with all the, the, the euphoria that we seem to have right now on Wall Street, the, the caution. Walt, we appreciate it. We appreciate you joining us this year in, in tough times and in good ones. Thank you very much. Thank you, and uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and all your team. Same to you. Walt Bettinger, the CEO of Schwab. Still to come this morning, Google agreeing to pay $700 million to settle antitrust charges against its app store. We're going to break down what it means for Alphabet and the entire app ecosystem when we come right back. Google announcing a settlement with U.S. regulators over its pay store. It'll pay $700 million to consumers, but also importantly, make a number of changes as to how it operates. Our Steve Kovac has that story today for today's Tech Check. Hey, Steve. Yeah, yeah, Carl. Here's a stocking stuffer if you're an Android user. Google may owe you a couple bucks after settling an antitrust case last night with a group of state attorneys general. Google agreed to pay $700 million, with most of that going to Android customers, to settle the case brought against policy in its app store. Google will also make changes to its payment system and more as part of the settlement. Now, that includes allowing apps to offer alternative payment methods instead of going through Google, but Google's still going to collect a hefty fee from those, just 4% less than it already charges. It will also have to make it easier to download apps directly from the internet instead of through the app store. Now that will happen on one step instead of two steps, as you can see pictured here. And all of those changes are only only for U.S. customers. This is part of an emerging trend with these legal cases against Apple and Google's app stores in recent years. They're fighting country by country to uh, protect their high-margin app store models. Also, the settlement comes after Google lost its antitrust case against Epic Games last week. Judge will determine the punishment for that next month, but Google has already said it's going to appeal. Epic Games, though, not happy with this week's settlement and blasted the states for not going far enough. In a statement from Epic's VP of Public Policy, they put it this way, quote, the state's settlement does not address the core of Google's unlawful and anti-competitive behavior, end quote, and added it's going to go after more remedies as its case progresses. And of course, it's not over yet. There's, of course, that big DOJ antitrust case against Google's search business still playing out, not to mention one against its ad business, Carl. Steve, what do you make of these takes that argue the entire app ecosystem is starting to fray, uh, less durable? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, more more so fraying for the platforms that control the app ecosystems than for the apps themselves. And we're going to see that even more next year, Carl, uh, in the EU when the Digital Markets Act goes into effect. And we're going to see these platforms, especially iPhone, especially for Apple, uh, open up and start to allow a lot of these things we've been hearing the app developers agitate for for the last several years. Are pretty fascinating, and you're right. It's been a couple of big, uh, big stories in a couple of weeks regarding Alphabet. Steve, thanks. Thanks, uh, Steve Kovac.
Meantime, uh, trying to hang on some of these gains off the session highs. I would just note that the Atlanta Fed just revises, you know, it has this GDP model. They just revised Q4 up to 2.7%, <laughs> which is climbing. Remember, this was in the 1% range. It's way above the sort of blue chip consensus on Wall Street right now for fourth quarter. So we're not going to get the, what, 5.2% that we got in third quarter, but it's looking up. Yeah, And that's... that feeds into the Goldilocks story. Better yeah. growth, lower inflation and a Fed that's going to start cutting. Yeah, Atlanta's been tracking higher and higher as the quarter's gone on. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.